I started to say last week, but since I was confined to the bed last week, I need to say it was two weeks ago. I started a short series of messages, and I guess we would entitle the series, The Devil's Dangerous Devices. The Devil's Dangerous Devices. We've talked about two of those already. We talked about deception last week and diversion this week, and we'll get to some of the others, Lord willing, uh, in the days ahead. But I was just thinking the message tonight it would have actually made a good foundation to build those messages on. You could use it at the beginning or, or at the end, uh, and here I find myself sort of stuck in the middle, but maybe I can in doing this, make a connection with both ends of the series. And it's certainly information that you and I need to think about quite often. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 5. Mark, chapter number 5. I don't know exactly what to, to call this. I remember preaching a message entitled, God's Transforming Power. But in light of the fact that we're talking about the devil's dangerous devices, maybe we could just call this defeating the devil. You just, however you want to look at it, put whatever title you want on the message. It's obvious that man has some very, very serious problems. I mean, we don't even have to be halfway smart to figure that out. And I think we would all agree that the natural person needs to be transformed. That is to say that by nature, we are not what we ought to be. Every single person, without any exception, needs to be changed. That's just the way that it is. We're born into this world with a propensity to sin. And uh, to some extent, we carry that throughout our lives here on this earth. Even after we've been saved, there, there are the vestiges of the flesh that remain. And so we find ourselves, although loving the Lord and wanting to serve the Lord, we find ourselves in this struggle. And Paul says that uh, when I would do good, I find that evil is present with me. And the things that I would do, I do not. And the things I wouldn't do, I find myself doing. Well, listen, if Paul was involved in a struggle like that, you can mark it down. You and I are also going to experience some of these struggles. So when we think about the problems facing mankind, and we look at the situation as we see it today, it's evident that man's methods are not working. I mean, we keep writing books, initiating programs, spending millions and billions of dollars, and some way or another, our problems grow worse and worse. Our jails, our prisons, our courtrooms, our mental institutions are overflowing. And listen, that doesn't seem to be any relief in sight. We can't build jails and prisons fast enough, and the problem is just snowballing on us, and it seems like that all we know to do is to just complain about it. It's just a bad, bad world that we live in, and... And so we ask ourselves the question, is there any answer to this dilemma? I mean, 
Is there some means whereby man's temperament and his character and his conduct can be totally changed? Well, I believe there is. And one of the exciting things about God's Word is that we see numerous examples of God's power to change lives. And that encourages me. Because it helps me to understand that regardless of where I am in the struggles of life or how miserably I fail God or anything else, it helps me to realize that with God there's always hope if we just trust Him. One of my favorite passages is found here in Mark chapter number 5 where we are introduced to a demon-possessed maniac who is transformed by the power of God. You could say this is the story of a madman who became a missionary. And in this, I want you to think about the fact that we're not just talking about this particular man, but we're talking about humanity in general because the problems that's facing mankind are in some way reduced to just a very graphic illustration for us here in this man's story. So whatever his need was, we see that is also our need. The answer for his dilemma is the answer for our dilemma even today. In the first nine verses, I want you to notice his trouble, his trouble. And they came over under the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes, And when he was come out of the ship, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwellings among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces Neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. His trouble. Notice his condition is clear. And there are five things said here about his condition that we need to notice. Notice the dominion of sin. And we have a parallel to this found in Luke chapter number 8 and verse number 29, and it says that he was driven of the devil. Here is a man who was in bondage to sin, and that's the very nature of sin. It doesn't set us free. It doesn't liberate us. It doesn't enable us to live a life of freedom and liberty and to enjoy life, but rather it strips us of our goods and leaves us bound in chains. The dominion of sin. 
Then we see the anguish of sin. It says in verse 7 that he cried with a loud voice. I mean, listen, this man is, this is not just some little religious exercise he's going through. This man is at the point of desperation. He is crying. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. And notice the insanity of sin. It says in verse 5, he's cutting himself. I mean, who in their right mind would lacerate their, 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 their body? Who would, who would cut their own flesh? But that's the insanity of sin. And this, listen, this is just a minor manifestation of the problem. I mean, it goes much deeper than that and much further than that. We often wonder, why do people do what they do? We watch people as they do things that's totally contrary to natural reasoning. People that do things that, that inflict injury upon themselves. And, and we can't help but wonder, why would anyone do something like that? It just doesn't make any sense. And that's right, it doesn't make any sense. There is, an, there is a sense of being insane when we're in the grip of sin. Sin is insanity. But notice... Going back to Luke's account, also the shame of it, it says that he wear no clothes. He wear no clothes. I mean, there's, there's no modesty with this man. I mean, just get the picture. Here is this naked, raving maniac running through the cemetery. I mean, there's blood all over his body where he's been cutting himself. He's screaming and howling day and night. And you've got to wonder about the neighborhood, don't you? I mean, you've got to wonder what people must have thought whenever they would see that madman. And I think we could just sum all of those up talking about the cost of sin. He's robbed of his peace. His freedom, his material goods, his family, his self-respect, everything's gone. Sin has stripped him of all of his goods, and there he is. That's the condition in which the Lord finds this man. And notice, not only is the condition clear, but his conflict is ceaseless. Look again at verse number 5. Always, it says, always night and day. I mean, if ever there was an example of sin's power to enslave and to torment, this is it. It's a vivid illustration of the fact that lawlessness never brings happiness. Whenever the prodigal son decided on that fateful day that I'm going to take my goods, I'm going into the far country, I'm going to get out from under daddy's grip, I'm going to do my own thing, have it my own way, I'm going to live it up, I'm going to experience my freedom. And, and that was the very thing he lost. The thing he was looking for is the thing that he lost. And you know the story well. The old prophet Isaiah in chapter number 57, many, many years before, tells us in verse number 20 of that chapter as he describes the condition of the natural man. He says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked." Many of you have been watching, no doubt, the report of the hurricane there on the east coast. And you could see those fierce waves as they beat upon the shoreline. And in many instances, tearing down the structures that man had erected. 
And as Bev and I was watching that, and I commented on 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 the power of the sea. It just it's mind boggling. I mean, it's just it, it's beyond anything that we can imagine, anything that we can really produce on our own. And the prophet says that's the way it is with the unsaved man, with those that are wicked, with those that are out of the will of God. They're like that troubled sea; they cannot rest. And it's day and it's night that they're troubled. And just as that sea is always churning and bringing up the filth, even so it is in their life. Isaiah chapter five. There's an interesting statement here that really gets down to the nitty-gritty and describes the plight of man. Listen to what the prophet said. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Now, a cord of vanity, that word vanity means nothingness. You'll remember that when Solomon said that, that, it, that all of the world, it, it's all vanity. He's simply saying it's like a little spider web. There's nothing to it, nothing substantial. And Isaiah says in regards to our iniquities that it's like it's, it's, it's like a cord of vanity, a spider web. You can break away from it just any time you choose. But then notice he says, and we sin as with a cart rope. Now, the cart rope is that large rope that was connected from the wagon or the plow to the oxen. Now think about it. I mean, we're talking about something that is so large, so strong, that no man could break a cart rope. And the idea that he's presenting here is that we attach ourselves to sin with the idea that we can break away anytime we want to. It's just a cord of vanity. There's no problem. I can quit anytime I want to. I'm not a slave to this habit. I can get away from it anytime that I choose. But when the time comes that we seek to pull away from it, all of a sudden we discover that that, that cord of vanity has become a cart rope. I mean, we are so attached to it that we can't break away from it. That's why Paul said to Timothy, speaking of those that are lost, He said they are taken captive by the devil at his will. So understand, when we talk about those dangerous devices of the devil, when we talk about his activities among men, when we talk about his work and his power and his strategies, please understand that the natural man, the unsaved man, has absolutely no protection whatsoever. No way to break away from the power that enslaves him. So many times we, in dealing with those that are unsaved, it might be that we're dealing with their problem, which is maybe alcoholism, or maybe they're addicted to a drug, or addicted to sex, or whatever the particular addiction might be, and we leave the impression with them that if you really wanted to stop, you could. If you really wanted to change, you could. If you really wanted to break away, you could. And the fact of the matter is, until they're saved, they can't. They can't. They are a slave to that particular sin. Listen, we need to understand the situation they're in. 
Listen, whenever I think about the Lord Jesus Christ and His dealing with those that were sinners, you'll remember that the Lord had much more patience and much more tolerance for those that were acknowledged sinners than He did for for the religious people of that day, for those who were hypocrites. I mean, those are the ones He came down hard on. He understood the position that the unsaved people are in. So... Here we are, and we see in this story what we're up against, what mankind is up against. We see his trouble. But notice in verse number 10, we begin there and go down through verse 15, and here we see his transformation. Verse 10, And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all of the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. (laughs) I guess we could say something about their second choice. Think about that. If we can't live in man, next on the list is is the swine. We'll just put put us in the pigs. And uh, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd, now get this, the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, and there were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed of the devil and had the legion, now get this, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I'm glad that for whatever the trouble is, that there is always the possibility of transformation with the Lord. How the Lord can take a a lump of clay and He can craft out of that lump of clay a vessel that is fit for the Master's use. It's so amazing to see how God can take a life that is broken by sin, a life that is in shambles, and make it a thing of beauty. Up out of the dust and out of the ashes, He creates a vessel unto honor. That's what God wants to do with every person's life. God has a plan for each and every person. Those that are saved or unsaved will never realize that plan. But God has a plan. We believe, as the Bible teaches, that Christ tasted death for every man. The penalty was paid for every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever been born. And that everyone could be saved if they would but trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the moment they're saved, God begins to do a work of transformation in their lives. And we see this transformation taking place. First, His cure was instantaneous. I love this. Instantaneous. In in, in other words, it happened right then and it was complete. Our modern-day therapy programs teach that people have to go through life living in a state of recovery. Please don't misunderstand. I'm thankful for the good that many of the recovery programs have done. I'm thankful for the help that they have 
provided for people that are in need. All of that is wonderful. But let me tell you, there's something wrong with the theology of anyone that tells you that because you used to be an alcoholic, you'll always be an alcoholic. Because you used to be a drug addict, that you'll always be a drug addict. And some of those people, 20, 30, 50 years afterwards, they will describe themselves like this. Hi, my name is David. I am a recovering alcoholic. Something wrong with that. Let me tell you what's wrong with it. They've traded one dependency for another. They've been dependent upon alcohol and now they're dependent upon a program. Now they're dependent upon people to help them through the rough places of life. I'm glad that I can say, hi, my name is David, whereas I used to be an alcoholic. Now I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away and all things have become new. You see, salvation is not a process. It's not something that you grow into. You are as saved right now as you will ever be. Now, there are going to be a lot of changes. One of these days, we're going to have a new glorified body. Won't that be something? All of the heartache and the pain and the suffering and the misery, all of those things will be passed away. We'll have a new body like unto that of the Son of God. And that will be wonderful. Not only a new body, but a new attitude. And everything about us is suddenly going to be totally forever transformed. None of us have arrived at that state of perfection yet. We are involved in that process, but we are as saved now as we ever will be. If you're a child of God, regardless of what you do the remainder of your life, you'll continue to be a child of God. You might fail God, but you'll be a child of God. You might at times doubt and wonder, and, and it might be times that you'll be unfaithful to God, but you'll still be a child of God. So we're not saved by a process. We immediately become a child of God. He doesn't say change your bar stools one year at a time until finally you work your way out of the door. He just takes us out. And the moment that we're saved, however, the Lord begins this work of sanctification, this work of, of changing us. And, and although we're not totally delivered, we are being delivered. Paul spoke about salvation in three tenses. He spoke about us being delivered, past tense, from the penalty of our sins. That's something that's already happened. And he talks about in the, in the prospect of our salvation of finally being delivered in that last day when we have a new glorified body. But in between those two, we are in the process of being delivered from the very power of sin. Some people are making more progress than others, but we're all in this process. The change starts the moment we receive Christ as our Savior, and it continues on throughout our lifetime. Now, think about it. Here is this fellow, this mad, raving maniac, one moment, and the very next moment, he's delivered. Totally changed. And notice his change. Look at verse 15. His change is incredible. 
Notice there are three things here, and I'm certain that he could have given a, a list of a dozen different things that changes, but it's interesting to me that he puts it into three different groups. He speaks about the fact that this man's mannerisms were changed. Notice it says he's sitting. That is, he's calm and at peace. He, he's not running through the tombs. He's sitting. What a change. Incredible. And then it says he's clothed. Not only did his mannerisms change, but his morals changed. He's put on some clothes. He's no longer naked. By the way, he did not need to go off to Bible college to learn that he ought to put on some clothes. I mean, that was just natural for him. And I say to you, I think that it's the... It's the natural thing for people to recognize that, that our bodies are to be covered appropriately. And it, you know, you can't help but wonder about some of these people that claim to be a child of God, and yet there is absolutely no modesty whatsoever in their life. I, I, I see so many instances and situations where I, I think to myself, and you know, most of the time I, I, I'm more tempted to blame the husband than the woman because I cannot imagine husbands allowing their wives to go out the door going to church wearing the garb that some of them have on. It just Maybe I ought to say the lack of garb, because an old toe sack would look a lot better than what some of them have got on. It's just absolutely pathetic. I'm telling you, when the Lord changes you, you don't become perfect, but your mannerisms change, your morals change. And then notice, the third thing that he deals with has to do with a change in his mind. It says that he is in his right mind. You know, we hear a lot of talk about mental illness, and that, you know, by the way, is a real, genuine thing. It's a real serious problem. But here's the fact of the matter. Every unsaved person, don't misunderstand this, but get the point. Every unsafe person, in a manner of speaking, has a mental problem. They really do. Sin is insanity. Why would you keep doing something over and over and over again, knowing that the results are going to be the same, and knowing that the results are going to be harmful, not only to you, but harmful to those that you love? Well, why would you do that? That's the way it is whenever we're given over to sin. We're not in our right mind. You remember when he speaks about the prodigal son, and here he is down in the pig pen, and he would have, he would have eaten the husk that the pigs did eat, and no man gave to him. Well, I'm certain that he had many friends when he had some jingle in his pocket, when he was able to buy the next round of drinks. There were plenty of people there at his elbow, plenty of people you know, willing to listen to his stories and willing to pretend to be his friend. But now, when push comes to shove and the money runs out and the party's over and the lights are out, there's nobody there to help him now. And the Bible says that it was just during a situation like that, and he began to reflect upon the condition of his daddy's servants. And he thought to himself, here I am out in the pig pen. There they are, sheltered in the quarters provided 
by my daddy. Here I am out in a far country without anything to eat. And they're able to sit down and to eat three square meals a day. I, I mean, all of their provisions right there for them. And it says, when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he went home to the Father. And that's the way it is. Sin is spiritual insanity. But when we come to ourselves, and when this man finally is delivered, when he's transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that he is now in his right mind. He's no longer the raving maniac that he was. But then there's another thing about his change. It not only was instantaneous and incredible, But it's instructive. It teaches us two very important lessons. Number one, any life that's not controlled by God is out of control. Any life not controlled by God is out of control. Listen to what Jeremiah said in chapter number 10 and verse 23. He said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And you've heard me say many times before, that's sort of a polite way of saying that we don't have enough sense to know how that we ought to live. The way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We don't know how we ought to live, and we don't know what we ought to do. We don't know how to do it. And it just goes back to what... Paul said to Timothy, they're taken captive by the devil at his will. So a life out of control is a life that is out of God's control. But the second thing is that there's no hopeless cases with God. I mean, can you imagine one of the neighbors saying to the local Baptist preacher, look, I've got a neighbor that, well... uh, Maybe I better not give you a real vivid description, but this fellow's got a lot of problems. And preacher, I would love it if you'd come by and uh, make a house call. Would you come by and visit my neighbor? Well, where's he at? Well, he's he's up up in the cemetery. You mean he's dead? Oh no, he's not dead, but he stays there. Really? Well, when can I reach him? I mean, you know, day night. It doesn't make any difference. You'll find him. He'll find you. (laughs) <laughs> and, and can you imagine the preacher going up there into the cemetery and here this screaming, raging maniac comes running out of the tombs, dripping with blood, screaming and yelling and broken chains hanging from his arms. I mean, it says no man could tame him. They had tried and they had failed. What do you do with a case like that? Well, it'd be pretty easy to come to the conclusion rather rapidly that, man, this is out of my league. I can't handle this. You know, I'm out of here. And I've seen a lot of cases where it appeared to me that was about as hopeless as you can get, but I've got to say, I've never encountered anyone just quite like this fellow. But, in spite of all of that, what happened? Christ walked into the picture, and he made the difference. And I'm telling you, there are no hopeless cases with God. Jesus was his answer. You see, we don't have exactly the same problem, do we? I don't know anyone that has exactly the same problem this man had. But 
But I've known a lot of people, I know a lot of people who are living in captivity to sin. A lot of people who have been stripped of their goods, a lot of people who no longer have peace and joy, and those things that we Christians take for granted. And they need to understand that in the Lord there is hope. The devil would have you to believe this situation has just got to the point that it's hopeless. No, it's not hopeless. If God could transform this man, He can transform you. If He could solve his problem, He can solve your problem. If He can meet his need, He can meet your need. Now, beginning in verse 16, I want you to notice the third thing about this man, and that is his testimony. We see his trouble and his transformation, but notice what happens next. Verse 16, And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. That seems a bit strange to me. They want him out of there, you know, leave. They're not interested in what other great things might happen. They just want him to leave. And when he was coming to the ships that he had been, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed to him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered that is he allowed him not, but saith unto him, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him and all men did Marvel. Notice the expression of his testimony. First of all, it's given in response to the Lord's command in verse 18 and 19. Notice that he automatically had a desire to fellowship with the Lord. The Lord didn't have to say, now you've made a profession of faith, the next thing you need to do is to enroll in our discipleship class And hopefully, after a while, I can convince you of your need of getting in church and serving the Lord and so forth. No, this was as natural as anything could be. He wanted to be with Jesus and with His followers. And that that, listen, that's the way it ought to be. When we become a child of God, we ought to want to be with the people of God. I, I, I just find it hard to understand how anyone would want to miss a service like we had this morning. I'm... Why would any Christian, you know, just voluntarily decide, I don't want to be there, I don't want to see that, I don't want to experience that, I don't want any part of that? I don't understand. He wanted to be with Jesus. Now, notice our Lord's response to his request. He gave him a job to do. He said, I want you to go home. And I want you to tell your family, tell your friends, I want you to go share with them what I've done for you. Do you realize the Lord's given to you and I that same responsibility to go and to tell others? Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Worship is fine. I'm certain that had he gone in there to be with the Lord day and night, that he would have spent much time in worshiping the Lord, and that's wonderful. But worship without work is nothing more than hypocrisy. 
There's a lot of people that get all excited about worshiping the Lord and they'll be in church on Sunday morning. They love the thrill they get, you know, when they get together and sing those old songs and it stirs them up. And they think about the wonders of heaven and it thrills their heart. And then the show's over. And you don't see them until next week. He has a work to do. We have a work to do. And that work involves telling others of the change that the Lord has made in our life. And by the way, again, this is the natural expression of somebody that's been blessed of the Lord. He, he did. Now, there's one thing to train people how to witness. You can do that. But if you have to, if you have to, if you have to badger people and encourage them to get involved in witnessing, it's not going to last. Somebody was inquiring about a particular ministry and sent me an email wondering about this ministry and, you know, it'd be a good ministry. Why don't we have it? And, you know, I think of a lot of things that would be great, a lot of good ministries that we could start. But if you don't have someone with a heart to do it, you can have the best plan in all of the world and it'll all come unraveled. It'll never amount to anything unless there's somebody there who is willing and able to do that work. A lot of times the best thing that you can tell somebody whenever they say, and Bev and I both have heard it over and over again, somebody would come in and say, well, you know, we really need to do this or do that. And we've just started kind of giving them the answer, okay, do it. Do it. Start, start the ministry. Get it going. And you'll be surprised how many people lose interest in, interest in, in, in the ministry whenever it's, you know, when the ball's in their hands. They, they don't want to do it. But it's just as natural with this man as anything could be. Witnessing for the Christian ought to be just as natural as breathing for a healthy person. When you think about the flowers and they're kissed by the dew and they begin to give off their fragrance and they begin to grow, that's the way that it ought to be. Or you think about the little birds after the storm and they come out and they begin to sing their song just naturally. And that's the way our witnessing ought to be. I, I love what the psalmist says, you know, in Psalms 14. He's talking about the fact he brought me up out of a horrible pit. He set my feet on the solid rock. He established my goings. He put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and, and be glad. Natural. And then notice the essence of it. He told others, now listen, this is the message, this is the essence of what he had to say. The great things Jesus had done for him. You know, this shows me that witnessing does not depend entirely upon spiritual maturity. Nor does it require a college education. If you've been saved, you can tell others in a plain, simple way what Jesus Christ has done for them. Now, being a spiritually mature Christian will help you in a lot of ways. Having experiences will help you deal with people in a lot of ways. That's all well and good. But you don't need that to get involved in serving the Lord. Then notice not only the essence of it, but the extent of it. 
it says, notice the word Decapolis, that he published the word and it tells us that he published it in Decapolis. That word means ten cities. It's in the northeast part of Galilee. This fellow, in other words, get the picture, this fellow is not content with just telling his family. Not content with just telling his friends and his close-by neighbors. Think about it. This man evangelized ten cities. He doesn't have a church bus. He doesn't have a, a, a printing press. He doesn't have a radio broadcast or anything like that. There was only one way to do it, and that was by foot, as he goes through one city after another, and it simply says this, I want everybody to know about what Jesus has done for me. Ten cities. That is just mind-boggling. It's amazing to think that this madman become a missionary that God used in such a, in such a great way. Now, verse 20, notice the effect of it. Verse 20 says, and all men did marvel. In other words, his testimony affected multitudes. And you just think of all of the lives that were changed as a result of this man. And, and, and they were changed because now, suddenly, they can see the possibility of them being changed. That if God can do that for him, he can do it for me. I, I mean, this man is some mother's son. Maybe some woman's husband, some child's father. He has relatives. He has friends. There are people that are watching him, people that tried to help him. And all of a sudden, in an instant, he is totally transformed. Boy, i got to tell you, that is more powerful than any sermon you'll ever hear from a pulpit of wood. When other people can see the change that Jesus Christ makes in your life, that knowing what you used to be and seeing what you have now become in Christ, and they marveled. The most powerful sermon ever preached at Lakeway Baptist Church won't be preached from this pulpit. It won't be preached by me. It won't be preached by Brother Kenneth. The most powerful messages are those that are preached by the manner in which the members live when they leave this building and go out and mingle with their family and their friends. We are epistles, that is, living letters. We are the only Bible that some people will ever read. That's why it's so very important that we allow God to use us. And that brings us down to the last thing, and that's, that's the example of it. What this man did is a good example for all of us, because the world needs to know that there is an answer for their problems. And it's not Oprah, and, and it's not found in the megachurches. It's not in the counseling sessions. The answer to their problems is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You you see, folks, we 
We don't defeat the devil. I said we might call this message defeating the devil. And, and we see in this a, a defeat of the devil, but we don't do it. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory because the victory has actually already been won. When Jesus suffered and bled and died on the cross and shed His precious blood, He secured for us the victory. And we're fighting from a position of victory based on what Jesus Christ did. And it's never what we do for the Lord. It's what God does for us and through us and with us that really matters. The devil can be defeated. Lives can be changed. That's why these next few weeks we're looking at those deadly devices of the devil that we might see how he operates and prepare ourselves, that we might enjoy the victory, experience the victory that Jesus Christ has provided for each and every one of us. Because it's not just for the spiritual elite, that little handful of chosen few super saints in the church. Oh no, it's for each and every one of us that the Lord wants to make a difference in our lives and transform us in the midst of our troubles and use us as a testimony to others that we come in contact with. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for the change that we've read about tonight in the life of this man. And we marvel. We just stand to gasp whenever we think about what You did for him. And Lord... We just feel amazed for what You've done for us. And we were down in the slimy pit of sin out of which we could never get ourselves. You came down to where we were. And You reached down and lifted us up out of the miry pit and put our feet on the solid rock. And Lord, help us to live day by day with such a song, a new song in our mouth that others might hear it and be glad and realize that by seeing the difference you made in our life, there is hope for their life. Let us be a witness wherever we go. We might never reach ten cities as this man did, We might reach many, many more. Or it might be the handful that we come in contact with during the normal course of our day. But help us to have a song in our heart and a prayer on our lips and to share with others the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. So we pray in His name. Amen.